This is the Bristol Cable. It was really eye-opening. One of the character witnesses for Ronnie was someone who had been injured by weapons in the conflict and Ronnie aided him in his recovery and helped him move from a hospital in Palestine to Jerusalem. And the jury was shown a picture of the extent of his injuries. And, you know, it was clear that the defendants, that they seen firsthand what's happening in Israel and Palestine. They're acting from the heart. On February the 6th, after a three-week trial, the Elbert Seven were found guilty. Sentencing will be on March 22nd, and they could face a maximum sentence of up to 10 years. I'm Priyanka Raval, a reporter for The Cable, and today I'm sitting with reporter Sean Morrison, who sat through the trial, to discuss the verdict, the trial as a whole, and the wider ramifications. Tuesday the 6th of February the verdict of the Elbit 7 trial was given and it was a unanimously guilty verdict. I was in the courtroom one of the partners of one of the defendants was crying in the public gallery I know a lot of the defendants looked quite shocked one of them Stavitz and I she actually raised the fist in the air and she smiled when she came out afterwards she said that justice will prevail but yeah, a lot of tears, a lot of heartache, it seems, from the friends and family. When you heard the verdict, Sean, were you surprised? I was shocked, yeah, actually. Yeah. Like having sat through the evidence, which, you know, a lot of it from the defendants, like their personal experiences of witnessing Israel's operations in Gaza, just given the current climate with the escalation, the war in Gaza since October. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that the defendants were found guilty. So this trial started on January the 8th and you've been in court reporting for most of that time. And for people who haven't listened to the first episode of Bristol's Murder Factory, I would highly recommend you do so. But if we can just go back to that, reporting on this trial, what, what has it been like? What was day one like walking into Crown Court? Well, I mean, just in general, the case was a bit strange, really. When I arrived, there was a a pretty heavy police presence, which is quite unusual at court. And I asked one of the officers why they were there, and they said it was to prevent a breach of the peace. But, you know, everyone was pretty peaceful. There were some protesters outside, but it wasn't like a rowdy crowd or anything. And then when I went in, there was this um, bloke on the press bench who I assumed at first was a journalist. He was asking me who I was and who I work for, uh, which is all fine. But then when I asked who he was, uh, he was like, I can't tell you that. I said, why? And he said, I've been ordered not to by the court, which okay. wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have happened really. Highly unusual behaviour for the press bench, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very strange. Very strange. So did the judge reveal his identity? No, the judge didn't. And at first, the, the defence barristers raised with the judge when the court weren't sitting that there was a mystery bloke on the press bench. Mm -hmm. And the judge had asked him to reveal himself, mm -hmm. but, he, but he, he didn't do that. 
And from what I remember you telling me, this was a case a bit slow to get off the ground, right? Because there was a lot of conflict of interest that then came out with jury members. It weren't that it was slow to start, actually. There, it was a lot of stop and starts towards like the end of the first week because it emerged that one of the jurors was a prison officer at the prison where some of the defendants were being held after they were arrested for criminal damage in this case, which is obviously a massive conflict of interest. So then they had to be dismissed? Yeah, they got dismissed and the, then proceedings went on. So these seven defendants, Stavit Sinai, Ronnie Barkan, Eliza Sarson, Demet, Archie Sadler, Finton Owens, Jarvi Georgeson and Paul Shaw. These were the seven who on the 15th of May 2022 shut down the Elbit Systems factory in Bristol. I know you talk about this in the last podcast episode, but who were they and what did they do that day? So they were a group of Palestine action activists and two of them knew each other, Stavitz and I and Ronnie Barkan from previous actions they'd carried out together or just the circles that they move in. But the others, no, they were all added to a group on signal and were told to prepare for the action. And then they met in Bristol the day before. And they weren't all living in the UK either, right? No. So Stavit, she's a teacher in Berlin. She flew from there. And Ronnie Barkan, he lived in Portugal, I think. He flew in from there the day before the action. Uh, both of them, I should say, are dissident Israeli citizens. So we have the day before an action, Stavit flying in from Berlin, Ronnie flying in from Portugal, the others coming up to Bristol. And all they've been told is that there will be an action in Bristol on the 15th of May, that date is significant, right? The 15th of May 2022 was the anniversary of the Nakba, when the mass displacement of Palestinians began in 1948. So yeah, that was the significance of the date. And they, they rocked up to Aztec West, pretty unassuming sight on the edge of Bristol. CCTV saw them like walking up to the building. They were armed with sledgehammers. They basically smashed their way in, sprayed the building with red paint as they went and barricaded themselves inside. It took them a while. There was a couple of security guards who tried to fling them out, but ultimately they were overpowered without using force because there was only two of them. So they got past them quite easily. As the alarms sounded in the building, they made their way quite deep into the building, it looked like, and barricaded themselves inside with the purpose, I guess, being just to occupy that space for as long as possible and prevent Elbit from carrying out its operation. And why was their action focused on Elbit Systems? Can you explain a bit who they are? Elbit is Israel's largest arms manufacturer. It provides about 85% of the land-based equipment for the Israeli military and about 85% of its drones. How many sites do they have in the UK? There's about four facilities in the UK, but there are other companies that are closely linked to Elbit. One of them, UAV Engines, another one, UAV Tactical Systems, which also operate here. Is the Bristol site particularly significant? It's significant because it's basically the headquarters of, I mean, it is, it is the headquarters of Elbit UK. The defendants, they shared the significance of the site in various different ways. Ronnie called it a murder factory. And so it was the pro-Palestinian Palestine Action Group who were behind this action, who what are now known as the Elbit 7 were part of. They have shut down arms manufacturers in the UK before, right, as part of their, their tactics. 
Uh, yeah, they've been pretty effective. In 2022, they took action against what was London's headquarters of Elbit Systems UK, and then it was permanently shut down. I think they uh, targeted the site about 15 times over the course of two years or so. And similarly, in Oldham, uh, a subsidiary of Elbit, they packed up after 18 months or so of uh, sustained action there. What were the Elbit 7 charged with? Um, So they were charged with criminal damage and burglary. And it kind of reminds me, Sean, in the past when me and you were both at the trial of the Colston Four who toppled the statue of former slave trader Edward Colston during the BLM protests. And those four were also charged with criminal damage. Mm -hmm. So does this fall in that kind of category of political trial where morals, ethics, political positions are what's actually on trial. Yeah, definitely. If it falls under the same category, but things have changed since Colston as a direct result of them being acquitted because they ran uh, human rights defence. After that, the Attorney General, who basically advises the government on legal matters, they referred the case to the Court of Appeal and asked for clarification on whether human rights can be a defence in uh, criminal damage cases. So the Court of Appeal, uh, they come back and said that protesters can't rely on that defence if they cause damage in a way that's violent or, or not peaceful. And it also said that it's not disproportionate to convict someone for significant damage caused during a peaceful protest. That clearly changes the way lawyers are able to defend protesters and, and the grounds on which they're allowed to do that. So if the defence wasn't able to argue a human rights defence, how did they argue it? Um, So the defence in this case was consent. That basically meant that the defendants would reasonably believe that if the landlords of the building, the owners of the property, let's say, knew the full extent of what Elbit were up to, they would have consented to the damage. And who are the landlords in this case? So the landlords are Somerset Council, formerly Sedgemoor District Council, but they're now part of Somerset. So they were arguing that had they known the full extent of the damage that the weapons that were being produced in Elbit would cause, they would have consented to the action that the Elbit 7 took. Yeah, basically that's what the jury had to decide on. So what was the prosecution case? Well, their case was more simple, really. It was just that they broke in and caused criminal damage and the other charge was burglary. So up first was the prosecution. You referred in the last podcast to the prosecuting barrister Richard Posner as a posh Ray Winston. How would you describe the way they made their argument? The prosecution's argument rested quite heavily on the the video evidence that was presented in court, which was hours of footage that had been separated to show each of the defendants what they did as individuals, just on on them smashing the place up, basically, and uh, spray painting their red paint everywhere. They also showed the live stream footage that Palestine Action did themselves, which I think Stavit was in charge of on the day. And they weren't masked or anything, so identity wasn't a problem for the prosecution. And Elbit's marketing manager was one of the witnesses? Uh, Yeah, so the vice president of sales and marketing operations at Elbit UK was called to the stand. His name's Alan Wright. And what did he say? Well, under cross-examination, he tried to distance the UK subsidiary of Elbit from the parent company in Israel. 
he was asked questions about weapons contracts that the UK arm had with Israel. Did he admit that Elbit was indeed a supplier to the IDF, the Israeli Defence Forces? He said it was a supplier, but he said that he personally wasn't aware of uh, specific contracts. Some people in the public gallery were rolling their eyes at this point. And did you internally roll your eyes? Let's just say it was quite frustrating uh, hearing his evidence. The link between Elbit UK and uh, the parent company is quite clear. They're almost indistinguishable. They have directors in common. And to say that they're not linked is uh, very strange when you've got the ambassador to the UK from Israel coming to the facility and explaining how proud they are of the work that's going on there and that it's a real benefit to their troops and stuff like that. How they can say they're unrelated is a bit of a stretch then. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he directly said that they were unrelated, but he was trying to separate the two and that the UK arms operations were focused on the UK. But, you know, they develop technologies that are used in drones, you know, that are used on, on Palestinians in Gaza, let's say. And from what you heard and from speaking to the defendants in the breaks after court, like, what, what was the kind of feeling about the prosecution argument? Were people worried? Had they done like a really good job? Or did people think that actually their argument was a bit transparent? The sense that I got, and that actually one of the uh, defence barristers mentioned, was that, uh, you know, it's, it's quite important to say that the Elbit witness, Alan Wright, he was granted special measures by the judge for him to appear behind the curtain. Uh, it's a special measure that's there for vulnerable witnesses or, or victims in a case. And this is something that has to be cleared by a judge. So they debated it in court before the, the jury came back in on the day he appeared. And the defence was saying, you know, there's no way that this guy is going to be intimidated by these protesters. You know, this is a guy with years and years of military experience, you know, so he's used to stressful situations, let's say. Mm. It, it was kind of clear that the, the prosecution were trying to paint the picture that he was a victim in, in some way in this. And the same goes for the police presence. You know, it's like whether the police thought there was going to be a disturbance or not. I don't know, but I, I've never seen that many police officers in a courthouse before for a trial. So is it fair to say that the impression that was given that Elbit is a victim, a bit vulnerable against these angry Palestinian activists? Well, that was the sense that, you know, kind of surrounded what was going on. But it, it uh, it was just at odds with, like, for instance, at the time when the trial began, it was just when South Africa launched its uh, genocide case in the, the international courts. So the fact that this was going on alongside that, you know, when it's being argued that Israel is committing genocide, the weight of this case just felt so minuscule and pointless, really. So how is the defence case? So very different from the, the prosecution. The defendants themselves from the witness box... Their job, really, instructed by their barrister, was to show how Elbit plays a crucial role in Israel's operations in Gaza, uh, particularly uh, the drones it manufactures and designs the technologies for. You know, and it, it got quite emotional at times. 
because Ronnie Barkan, for instance, this is an Israeli citizen, he had first-hand experience of what was going on there. And he brought up specific cases from the past. I, I should say as well that the jury were only allowed to consider the evidence that was heard in court. So while they wouldn't have missed, you know, what's been happening since since October, they were instructed to kind of put that out of their minds for this case because it rests on what the defendants knew at the time and what they were acting on, mm. if that makes sense. So the defence had a difficult job in confining their legal arguments to this idea of consent. You know, had the council known what their building is being used for in terms of the destruction that's going on in Palestine, that they would have consented to this action. But I imagine the defence tried to bring in as much of the context, especially the historical context, about Israeli attacks on Palestine as they could. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it was Ronnie. He was the second defendant to take the stand. He made reference to several high profile cases of Israeli attacks on Palestinians. He spoke about 2014, nine years before the current war, when the Israeli army launched what's known as Operation Protective Edge, which was a 51 day operation that killed more than 2,250 Palestinians, 500 children among them. Uh, in w one incident, an airstrike killed four Palestinian boys aged 10 and 11 while they were playing on a beach in Gaza, um, and they were killed by missiles launched from a, an armed drone. Was it quite emotional to listen to some of the defendants' cases? Yeah, it, it, it was really eye-opening. One of the, the character witnesses for Ronnie was someone who had been injured by weapons in the conflict at some point, and Ronnie aided him in his recovery and helped him move from a hospital in Palestine to Jerusalem. So he was Palestinian, his Palestinian, friend. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, the, and, the, and the jury was shown uh, a picture of the extent of his injuries. And, you know, it was clear that the defendants, particularly Ronnie, because this was a story that was personal to him, you know, not only had they seen firsthand what's happening in Israel and Palestine, but they're acting from the heart. You know, and, the, and they truly believe that what they're doing is, is a good thing. They're not just going there to smash the place up. But, but the very nature of the defence that they're allowed to run, being stopped from running a human rights defence, means that a jury's basically forced to just disregard that. This is the advert bit, mate. We've got a new campaign at the Bristol Cable. It's called Beyond the Bullshit. And it's basically putting up two fingers to the right-wing media, millionaire-owned newspapers. Don't buy into their whipping up of division and hatred. Become a member of Bristol's independent, community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. You mentioned how the defence is not allowed to run a human rights argument. You also mentioned that the jury are only allowed to consider the facts of the case. Yet it does sound like there's a lot of moving testimony around Israeli attacks on Palestinians that was allowed to be brought into the case. Were you surprised that the judge allowed as much as he did? Not surprised. And, and uh, I should say that I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know like 
exactly where the line is on these things, but I can say there were some restrictions. Like on a number of occasions, the judge stopped. Oh, so he did. He would intervene sometimes. Yeah, he he did. He stopped the defence when he was cross-examining the the Elbit witness, the marketing manager, when he asked his views on what was happening in Palestine and asking quite, let's say, maybe leading questions. And notably also, he stopped Ronnie when, under cross-examination by the prosecution, uh, he mentioned that the Israeli embassy had been in contact with the Crown Prosecution Service. He knew this based on a freedom of information request that was submitted by Palestine Action. He, he had evidence that the Israeli embassy had contacted the Crown Prosecution Service in this case. No, not in this case. It wasn't directly linked to this case. And this is why the judge told him to stop, basically. But, you know, it just it just illustrates... That the there were some parameters that the judge made around the defence argument. Yeah. And you've seen that freedom of information request that Ronnie tried to show the court. Uh, yeah, I've I've seen the the documents, which are, you know, as you would expect, like really heavily redacted. I should say that he didn't show the documents. He just made uh, reference to them while under cross-examination. But they were documents that were released under freedom of information laws to Palestine Action that showed correspondence between the Attorney General's office and the Israeli embassy. And they appear to suggest that the Israeli embassy tried to influence UK court cases. Wow. And at this point, Posner, the prosecutor who, you know, was until this point pretty amicable in his cross-examination, become quite animated, pretty angry actually, like went pink in the face and was scrambling to demand that Ronnie makes clear if there's proof of a connection between his employer, the CPS, and Israel. And Ronnie, who remained calm, made reference to the Guardian article about the documents and then the judge intervened and they moved on. Exactly what was discussed is unclear because of the heavy redactions, but in one email sent from the Attorney General's office, kind of assurances are made, let's say, about the royal assent of the police and crime bill, which saw more restrictions on protests, and a reference to the Colston case and the Attorney General's sending it to the Court of Appeal. After that, criminal damage cases couldn't be run on human rights defences. Mm. Because it should be noted that Palestine Action have used the human rights defence in other cases, in other actions that they've done, right? Not necessarily Palestine Action specifically, but uh, it's a defence that had been run many times by protesters, including pro-Palestine activists. So then if we go to Monday the 5th of February, when the judge had finished his summing up remarks, me and you went down to Bristol Crown Court, caught up with the defendants. There was a mood of quiet optimism, would you say? Yeah, I would say so. Maybe a sense of relief that the case was over. It was quite a long time, I think over four weeks in all, right, with a break in the middle, or maybe three. And a long time since the incident itself had taken place. So I guess the, the waiting had been pretty long. The people we spoke to outside the courtroom that day were making reference to the fact that the backdrop against which this case was happening 
they hoped would play in their favour. It was at a time where South Africa had just taken Israel to the ICJ. Obviously, it was some months after the 7th of October Hamas attacks. And the death toll in Palestine was rising every day. And I guess they hoped that that would bring home the defence case to the jurors. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And not just that, but the evidence that was heard in court, the moving testimonies of the defendants and clearly... Elbit's role in the conflict that was made clear during the case but you know what was unsaid was that the jury were there to decide whether the defendants could reasonably believe they had consent to do the damage so that's what they were allowed to rule on the jury mm. and it was far different from the Colston case for instance where you know their feelings about that statue could come into it. I remember as we walked away from Crown Court you said that you thought that the verdict would be not guilty. Is it because the defence case had just been more compelling? Uh, yeah, in my opinion, you know, if I was on that jury, I would have cleared them. I guess I just hoped because, you know, you see the thousands of people taking to the streets on a weekly basis here in Bristol, in London, and the public perspective on the conflict being the way that it is. You know, I would have liked to have seen them cleared, given what they were charged with and what this case was about, compared to what Israel are facing in the international courts. It just seems so minuscule. Jury deliberations took less than a day and they returned a guilty verdict. How did you feel when you heard that? Quite deflated, actually. I didn't make it down to the court that day, but uh, you were there. So maybe you could explain what the feeling was like. I think the feeling was of real heartbreak. There were a lot of tears, families who were really distraught. I think a lot of people were also a bit surprised. I guess when you're really convinced of the moral argument behind your actions, it can be quite difficult to find that people wouldn't rule in your favour, is the feeling I got. I think also the Colston case, being in living memory of everyone there, maybe it gave people uh, a sense that this would be the same, that you know the people of Bristol would return a verdict on the side of the activists because we're a politically motivated city with progressive views. And some people have said that maybe the lack of diversity on the jury played a part in the guilty verdict. A lot of people saying there wasn't very many young people, there weren't any people of colour. I mean, it's impossible to speculate on how influential these things are, but do you have a sense of, of whether that could have been a factor? I think, you know, as you say, it's impossible to speculate on what's going through, you know, because the juries sit in private and they discuss what in this case for three hours, right, or so. But you do see, you know, the press bench was on the opposite side of the room to the jury and there was... So you've got a pretty good view of them. Uh, yeah. And you do tend to, especially when, you know, there's a particularly moving piece of evidence or, you know, or like ridiculous piece of evidence, you do look to the jury to see if they see it in the same way as you. Mm. And they do tend to keep stony-faced, maybe. But it was brought to the judge's attention at, at some point in the trial that one juror in particular was dozing off, let's say. <laughs> oh dear. Um, and this was brought to the judge's attention when the jury out on lunch, when points of law are being discussed. Um, and the judge gave them a gentle reminder to be present and... And, and, <laughs> and, and awake, I suppose. <laughs> 
And what's happened since? There's been a reaction from Somerset Council, right? Uh, I, I don't know about reaction, but there's been a council meeting where members of the public and Palestine action activists attended and made clear their opposition to Elbit being in one of their buildings or one of their tenants. So Somerset Council planned to sell the building as part of uh, they're trying to dispose of their commercial investments. Is that a good thing? Was that is that welcomed by protesters? Uh, no, no. It's, it's not welcome because, in their view, the council should evict Elbit and uh. stop them from operating. So if they sell it on to someone else, it, it could be Elbit, let's say. Things are just going to continue as normal. I see. So they want Somerset Council to terminate the lease before they just sell it, to kick Elbit out, essentially. Yeah, and, and that phrase directly is what the defendants in court used. You know, their ultimate aim was to kick Elbit out. So... That's what they're continuing to push for. Yeah, I'm looking at some of the quotes of what people said at that meeting, and it sounds quite emotive. Um, one Somerset resident said that they'd been to Palestine and seen Israel's war crimes firsthand, and she feels sick that you have made me complicit in that. Another person said about how in December the council had voted to call for a ceasefire. How can you claim to want a ceasefire while you're harbouring the war criminals that make the genocide possible? That's powerful stuff. Yeah, it is really powerful. And also, to go back to the case, Palestine Action carried out an operation on what was at the time Sedgemore Council's offices before all of this case happened. And at the time, there was a blog post where opposition councillors voiced opposition to the council being the landlords for a company like this. That could have given weight to the defence in the consent argument. Action is continuing despite the guilty verdict. You know, just this last Wednesday, Palestine action activists have again blockaded the site, prevented access to the facility by locking on and laying down in front of the path of the vehicle entrance. You know, it, this fight will go on. There are national demos planned this weekend. I guess as, just to finish, what have been your reflections and takeaways after reporting on such an important case like this? I think overall, this case, given the fact that the trial happened at the same time as South Africa brought the genocide case against Israel to the international courts, to be reading about this, listening to the testimonies given there, and of course, the war that's happening now, this case feels you know, so minuscule. Comparatively, it's laughable that these people are in the dock. I mean, between the start of October and this week, you know, about 30,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza, and Israel has begun killing Palestinians in Rafah, where 1.5 million people have been told to go to be safe from the conflict. With that in mind, to me, it's clear that those in the dock in Bristol, they aren't the criminals. This has been Bristol's Murder Factory, The Debrief with me, Priyanka Raval, and Sean Morrison. Produced by George Colway and the Bristol Cable. Thanks for listening. <laughs>